This is the Monday, December 4th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. The administration had known for some time that the communists had planned a winter-spring offensive. In the final hours of January, their main thrust took shape. In a coordinated attack across the length and breadth of Vietnam, the communists swarmed through 38 major cities. And in one desperate suicide assault, 19 Viet Cong commandos stormed the United States Embassy in Saigon. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back 50 years to one of the Vietnam War's massive set pieces, the Tet Offensive. Tet was a series of simultaneous attacks by the communist North Vietnamese on 36 cities in South Vietnam, a gambit aimed at weakening support both within the Vietnamese Republic in the South and the citizens of their allies in the United States. Our guest is Doug Stanton. He embeds his readers with 46 fresh young American soldiers in Echo Company, an Army Reconnaissance Platoon of the 101st Airborne Division. Some of those men, those young men, had only been in country for a few weeks when they found themselves facing waves of battle-hardened Viet Cong guerrillas, often in hand-to-hand combat at the point of a bayonet. Doug Stanton captures their story through the eyes of 20-year-old Stanley Parker in The Odyssey of Echo Company the 1968 Tet Offensive and the epic battle to survive the Vietnam War. Mr. Stanton is a journalist, lecturer, screenwriter, and the author of New York Times bestsellers In Harm's Way, The Sinking of the USS Indianapolis and the Extraordinary Story of Its Survivors. He also brought us Horse Soldiers, the extraordinary story of a band of U.S. soldiers who rode to victory in Afghanistan. That book is the basis for a Jerry Bruckheimer film coming in 2018. Stanton's work has also appeared in a wide number of top publications, and he's been a contributing editor at Outside. He's also a founder of the National Writers Series. For more, visit DougStanton.com or follow him on Twitter at DougStantonBook. Okay, now that we've arrived in the heart of the Vietnam conflict, let's join Doug Stanton and follow... The Odyssey of Echo Company. I'm joined on the line by Doug Stanton, author of The Odyssey of Echo Company, the 1968 Tet Offensive, and the Epic Battle to Survive the Vietnam War. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, thank you, Dean. It's great to be here. I was drawn right into this book. It's a credit to your writing. I picked it up over Labor Day weekend when usually you'd be out 
doing something maybe with the great weather. It was beautiful weather. I also had lots of things to do to help my dad with outside at the house. But I curled up with this book, if you can say that, about a book that's about the war and just was really absorbed, really drawn into it, drawn into following Stanley Parker and his story. He's such a likable man. You almost want to say character. It's great to know that there are real people out there like him that are just a a man of honor, somebody who went through something so hard and continues to serve, continues to give to his nation, continues to really be an inspiration. I was inspired by his story, and we don't get a lot of that out of the Vietnam War. We get a lot of two-dimensional characters, and people forget that there's always going to be a lot of gray in wartime, and soldiers are not these black-and-white creations. So I wanted to start where the Odyssey of Echo Company does, and that's with the dedication. You write that your book is, quote, for those still coming home, body and soul. How did you approach writing about the Vietnam War in a way that would enable a veteran of the conflict like Stanley Parker to pick it up now that it's on shelves and say those words that every historian wants to hear? Yes, he got it right. How did you work on making it a book that they would say that helps them to come home, to have closure on this war? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's just what I posed myself. What I'd like to write about, about ordinary people making the hardest decisions at the most difficult moment. I did that with my World War II book, In Harm's Way, and in some ways with horse soldiers about Afghanistan. And I met Stan Parker in Afghanistan in a Chinook helicopter. I thought, who is this older soldier on the Bagram Air Base Strip, 50-plus years old, older than anybody? And we kept trying to get up and out to the Pakistani border. I was doing research for horse soldiers And the weather was bad, so we began to talk, and he began to tell stories, and he finally asked if I'd written In Harm's Way about the USS Indianapolis. I said yes, and then he said, out of the blue, would you write about Vietnam? And I'd seen In Harm's Way as a survival story, and I came to see Stanley Parker and the Recon Platoon's own story, not as a geopolitical story or a story about what was happening in America, but what's happening in the soul of young men of America, and that would even include today in Iraq and Afghanistan. What happened to me in Vietnam? That's the question, basically, I think Stan posed to himself. And all those years later, we're in Afghanistan, and I asked him what the scariest part of being in Vietnam was, and he said, coming home, which also then told me that it wasn't a story ultimately about combat. I mean, I think the Odyssey of Echo Company is a book about people, and now is that time to have this national conversation you know, and put a period on the end of that sentence, you know, what happened to me in Vietnam. This is a generation, two generations ahead of me. So I was kind of answering those same questions for myself, too, but I wasn't fully aware of what was going on. So so in a funny way, then, this story is wound into what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq right now. I really feel that it's an important one to tell. A bunch of things that you said there reminded me of reading The Odyssey of Echo Company. One is about that story of coming home. And there are many of those moments as you read this book that you say, maybe that view that I just had of it that I mentioned there about 
how we've all absorbed so many movies, so many details from the movies, you think that couldn't possibly have happened or, well, that wouldn't have been what it was like when they came home. Things like a World War II veteran saying to him, well, uh, our war was the real war. It was a big war. It was four years. You, you didn't suffer anything. It seems incredible that those are real moments that these men suffered. Things like being out and being just targeted by people and, and have horrible things that, that are said to him people not wanting to talk to him. It's really an engaging book in the sense that it brings you in and says you're in this man's shoes because you set it up, we get to know him, and it is 50 years since the Tet Offensive. So most listeners either weren't alive or they weren't old enough to understand it. Most of your readers weren't. They have the same perspective that I do here, and this is just before I'm born. So I learned most of the things that I learned as much as I might be skeptical and try to get a full story and read a lot of history books. You give us the perspective here in the Odyssey of Echo Company so that it's someone who's signing up today can maybe read it and it's something that they can relate to. We have men and women now serving all over the world in combat roles. What do you hope that they'll get when they pick up the Odyssey of Echo Company? First of all, I hope that this book, if you set it in the middle of the kitchen table, I hope that it prompts discussion, as my other books have done among families, about just what your uncle, your grandfather, your father, your brother had gone through and often the Vietnam veteran in particular hasn't spoken. I really think that the Vietnam War is our country's unfinished narrative. It really is a story in search of a period. I mean, you and I can talk about the Civil War and Korea, World War II. We can talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, but when we begin this conversation, really one of the first questions is, how do we even talk about Vietnam? And I think it's a tragedy that we haven't really engaged with this calamitous event, you know, at which point, in many ways, the country cleaved into hawk and dove and left and right. We haven't engaged in it and come to an orderly sense of what it is we're going to think about it. We all think politically about this war, and uh, that's true. There are lots of great books, but I really wanted to not write that book. I wanted to write the book that asked the question, how did the war make you feel? I'm not in the book to tell you how I felt about the war. And it's very different. My job as a writer, I think, is to be a witness, to be a listener. I think there's a power in storytelling. There's a power in just telling a story that's complex with no easy answers. We so often are driven to Google and other websites in our own kind of bubble to figure out, well, what should I think about that? Well, when you come to Vietnam, the reality is we kind of have a collective head scratch because we really don't know what to think about it. And at the same time, you ask me, well, what to tell people who weren't alive during Vietnam? The fact is, they are alive during Vietnam because every person they meet who's 68, 70 years old, and they meet them. They meet them at the grocery store. They see them at the checkout line. Those people are thinking about Vietnam. Even if they didn't serve there, even if they protested the war, they're still thinking about it. And uh, Dean, when I be, was reporting, just scratching beneath the surface, you know, I'd go to a, out to dinner with some people. What are you working on, Doug? Oh, man, it's this book about Vietnam. I think it's going to take longer than the war itself because this is about 10 years in the making. And, and you know, my friend who was a painter, he goes, really? I said, yeah, he goes, Vietnam, wow. And then he, for about 20 minutes, he just talked about how in his high school it affected everyone. He didn't want to go, and he somehow ended up, he did not get drafted. He was at the tail end he made it through that wicket without going over, but he was just as engaged with that whole, with that whole time. And it was still very much part of his life, very formative. And when I asked Tim Anderson, who's a member of recon platoon 
So this is the 101st Airborne, and it's a recon platoon uh, deployed to Vietnam, and they do some big fighting, and it's, you know, this is a national event, the Tet Offensive, and, and yet Tim says to me, I can't remember, 1968 was the most important year of my life, and I can't remember any of it. So if, we did, if we're listening right now, we just pause and just take the most important moment in your life. Let's say it's your wedding or the death of someone or the time you graduated and you suddenly can't remember it. I mean, you've just, you've just lost a part of your soul and you lost a part of your personal history. And I think now is an inflection point. Right now, as we're talking with these vets becoming 70, which is the age that the World War II vets started talking back in 1990, 95, we're at that point. It's time for them to look back. The door is open. Let's have this conversation. And let's just listen because there's so much pain and there's so much pride too in their stories. And I think we'll be a better place if we just have this conversation. Even when you say the Vietnam War, as I'm listening to you talk about how people have all these different feelings and participations and also how long it went on, it's not any one thing. It occurs to me as you're speaking there about in harm's way, we could take a story like the Indianapolis and say, okay, they had a role. We know their story. You can begin and end your book about it, about the sharks. These are all features of that story. But the greater narrative of World War II, we know it was us against the Axis powers. And then you can get a little bit lower in there and say, okay, well, there were the Soviets. They were allied with Hitler. And then Hitler decided to invade them. It's something we can really wrap our minds around. We know what it was. And so we focus on that and we'll talk about it. And if you have a grandparent who's a Vietnam veteran, maybe people tell you don't talk to them. I hear that often. Whereas World War II, you know what they did because you know some way, somehow, they were part of this greater mission that was pretty straightforward in, in the narrative. And you, they might not want to talk about it, but you don't have so many of those questions. And sometimes they do want to talk about it here, the Vietnam generation, as you say here, when Stanley Parker, when you call him, he says, I've been waiting for your call, right? right. And that's so, you know, he's at that age, that's 70. You sent me here a great summary for it that I'll use. It's the verdict of a starred review in Library Journal for the Odyssey of Echo Company. It says, we are finally ready to learn more about Vietnam, and no book tells the story better than this one, which I thought, perfect. I underlined it. I printed it out and underlined it as soon as you sent it to me because that seemed to really capture the feeling of it. This wasn't just another book. You didn't feel like you were doing that political one side of the other thing that you mentioned or trying to get some broader narrative by taking this massive, long war with so many complex facets and focusing on Stanley Parker, who we know from when you meet him there for horse soldiers, that he's a seasoned veteran. We know that he came home and we get to know him. We say, take us back, or you say, take us back to when he's this young man, fresh out of high school. He survived polio as a boy, which is incredible. He asks if he'll ever get to go to Vietnam when he goes and, and signs up. And that word get jumped out at me. I mean, how different from the image that we have of people who were going to Vietnam, the many people drafted the protests. That word just really did jump at me how much he wanted to serve and how much the reality is at odds with what he thinks he's going to go and participate in. Who is this young man and what inspired him to serve in a place that others in the 60s are desperate to avoid? Right. Well, remember, so Stan Parker and this generation, their sons and daughters of World War II. 
So it's 1966-67. Uh, World War II has just ended 23 years earlier. We're 17 years on now from 9-11. You think of it that way, you realize how close the World War II experience is to young men like Stan Parker. Stan is the son of an iron worker in Gary, Indiana. He is your uncle, he is your father, and he's the young boy in the convertible listening to music, driving around Gary, drinking milkshakes, wondering what in the world it holds for him when he graduates from high school. And he wants to go into the service. And I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of veterans today, especially for horse soldiers, and I hear the same thing. You know, 9-11 happened, I was in high school, or I was 23, and I joined up. And uh, we have a very different perspective on those veterans today for a lot of reasons. But I want to point out, I suspect that the impulse that Stan felt was similar. World War II is over. We're fighting something, the Cold War. We hear about that a lot on the news. There are only three channels that he's getting on at home. In a troubling way, however, the Vietnamese, and we'll get to them in a minute, they're fighting a civil war and a war of reunification. We're fighting really China and Russia in Vietnam. So we have some kind of cross purposes here. But Stan does join up. He thinks it's the greatest adventure in his life. He wants to be a screaming eagle. He wants to be one of those guys that jumped into Normandy on D-Day as part of the 101st Airborne. He volunteers for this uh, dangerous duty, as do his platoon mates. They're set down in Vietnam in December of 67. They're highly trained, but they're not fully prepared for what happens then on January 30th, 31st of 68, which is when the Tet commences. So that's really when his awakening comes. He realizes that this battle is nonstop, 360 degrees, ambush at night, walk during the day. And this, to me, is where the story gets interesting because what I think really Stan is looking a path forward for is how to remain an ethical, brave person in the midst of having to make so many hard decisions. That, to me, is what writing can do is it can dramatize that moment. You did that so many times throughout the Odyssey of Echo Company where you described something in just such a way that it made me see it through his eyes here, through Stanley Parker's eyes, get to know him. And then when you look at those pictures that are in the center of the book, you can see this transition. And it's and then you read one of the captions, and here he has that thousand-yard stare. And you read the caption. He's only been there for, what is it? It's, it's just a, it's a few months, I believe. Or, I mean, it's not... Yeah. It's, Exactly. He's aged so much in his face and his and his look from that young man that that enlists and says, "Am I going to go kill anybody?" Or he wants to fight and destroy and pillage and all this. He he has these high ideals that he wants to go and serve, and that's what he means by that. I don't want people to get the wrong idea when he says he want. Am I going to get to go? It's because he doesn't want other people to have to do it. He feels he should do his bit and serve, as was that World War II generation. Exactly. There's a certain bravery in the guys I talked to from the platoon, uh, both in having survived what they did and then also talking to me, you know, about their impulses and their desires and what it is they thought they would get. And so much of it, because again, they volunteered, so they enlisted and then they ended up then volunteering for the reconnaissance platoon mission. They thought that this was a noble thing to do and something they dreamed of in high school. And there was a remark in there in the book that I believe maybe it's the sergeant who's, I guess he's leading them over there, not the one that's training him. But he says that, you know, that's not an easy job to be doing the recon. And I realized that was another thing that I've 
kind of picked up over the years that wasn't accurate in the sense that they're not just out there wandering around and, and reporting back. They have a very high casualty level there. It's a very tough job that they have. And these are just brand new guys. They are. Like I say, they're, high, they're jump qualified. They're, they're, they're paratroopers. So there's a certain cachet they have in relation, they feel, to the, to the line companies or to the infantry soldiers. They really meld together as a band of brothers. And one of the things that I think helped them is that they trained uh, F4 Campbell, home of the 101st, and then deployed together. The platoon kind of had been stood up at Fort Campbell, and so they had a cohesive group that really helped them through the tough times. You know, as we're sitting here talking about then, and we think, you know, I'm just thinking about your earlier question about why now. You know, there's so many things that are kind of before us, but I'm hoping that we, in this part of our American life, we can start to connect some dots. Why is it that the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. is the most visited memorial in that city? I mean, that must mean that there is some power, there is some allure, some draw to that memorial. It's drawing Americans there, drawing people from around the world. And, and yet, like I said earlier, we haven't, haven't really recognized that nationally. And it's really curious. If you've been, I've been to that, and every time I go to that memorial, it's such a powerful, quiet place. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because it kind of induces silence. You know, it literally in, in, induces reflection because you can see yourself in the black granite. But when people wonder, well, why should we be talking about Vietnam? It's because I really do think we're thinking about Vietnam a lot. And then with the Ken Burns documentary coming out, I'm really hopeful that that also further prompts this, what I call a national conversation about the war. We did two interviews with authors on the Vietnam War Memorial one on Maya Lin. It's a book for kids. I mean, here she's just a college student. She's the age at the time, I believe she's 19, where some of these men were being drafted and sent over there. And the other one was about public art and the role that it plays. Memorials to Shattered Myths is the name of that one and how we commemorate it. And both of them talked about the power that this memorial has and how different it is from the other ones. And we all know those things. We, If we're old enough, I guess we don't all know, but the controversy over it at the time the color black, the way that it's built into the earth, how different it is. I see books on that often, and I hear people talk about it often. It's where people want to go, and they speak about it with reverence. It's a national pilgrimage, and this is something where maybe that's why a book like The Odyssey of Echo Company, now people will be willing to pick it up, will be interested, because they've gone there, and I think it's very different when you walk down there into that slope and you see the long names and you walk back up out of it you really feel like you're changed you see those names on the wall there was one author wrote a book world war one new york and he said that somebody told him once go to the memorial for world war one find your name on that wall find your same name and then the first name and say somebody's parents loved that person enough to give them your name, just like your parents did. It meant something to them and to connect with it on a small level. And that's how we connect here with Stanley Parker. I felt that brings us into that whirlwind, just as we are nationally, even if we didn't serve, even if we weren't born yet, where 
you understand it from that perspective because that's how we see all history around us really is that just through the eyes of mm-hmm. ourselves you know our own lives and our own perspective so that's part of what this book was i was really pleasantly surprised impressed by it not that i didn't think it would be a good book but the fact that it was so much that story through that one point of view of this man someone who was just so likable as i said it was almost as if he was fictional but it's his very real life yeah stanley parker has lived a very interesting life first is an kind of an itinerant person younger that is his father traveled around the country visit, uh, from job site to job site it was a, a loving home good relationship with his parents but he really grew up i think in america he grew up around in america and that that in some ways makes him an open and curious person and you're right i found this with uh, in harm's way and horse soldiers there are dozens hundreds of great stories in the city that you could tell about Vietnam. I happened to meet Stan Parker in a helicopter in Afghanistan and was drawn to his, as he told me, his, his sense of wanting to figure out what had happened. And because of the nature of this war, being a guerrilla war, that is no front line that we can identify and attacks happening asymmetrically. I think that's also created in, in some veterans a sense of disorder, like, uh, well, when did that happen? When did this happen? And some of the platoon together and did our oral histories and talked. And you could see the story uh, taking shape. You know, Tim Anderson's strand of the story would be joined with Tom Souls, who would join with Paul Sedano and so on. And and um, that is fascinating to me. And this is why one-on-one the human interaction, the, the act of storytelling, it can be a healing, binding act. And it's uh, so separate from the geopolitical act of the combat itself. So that's why I set out to write the book. I was just, my editor, Colin Harrison at Scribner, said, Doug, you don't have to fix all the problems, but your job as a writer is to dramatize them. Let us live in the midst of this. You know, if you look at Picasso's Guernica, his painting from the 1930s, about the Spanish Civil War. It's a massive, and you go and you look at it and you think, huh, I mean, you really don't know what to think at first. And then you think, oh, well, maybe I better Google this. And then you realize there's no website I can Google to figure out what should I think about Guernica. Hmm. That's where I think we need to be as a country. We need to live in the midst of that complexity and doubt and confusion and kind of um, experience another person's own humanity and their own struggle, and that makes us, I'm going to make a huge generalization here, but that makes us stronger as a people, both in our neighborhoods and our cities and as a country. Now, I'm not thinking of any of this when I'm sitting down to write the book, but in the end, if I think, if you ask me what it's about, I think that this is a book about people trying to do the right thing, and as I said earlier, at the hardest moment. It's a book very much about the war and yet about just people you could put yourself in that which i I think is a unique thing when you there's another lady and you could find all these interviews listeners if they want in the archives but she wrote a book called a thousand letters home she her father never talked to her about world war ii then he passes away on memorial day and she goes up opens his army trunk and here are all the letters he wrote back and forth with she says spoiler alert <laughs> they got married and had me and she said we he always said maybe someday i'll talk about it she goes and she does presentations and she says people will tell me 
they told me from when I was very young, never ask dad about Vietnam or never ask your uncle, your grandfather, as the generations have gone. And I've done other books and they'll tell these stories. Andrew Nagorski wrote The Nazi Hunters and he said he's interviewing this man and he's talking about these horrors he saw. And mm-hmm. Andrew Nagorski said, I'm sorry that I that I brought this up and you had to relive it. I'm sure every time you retell the story, it, it's very upsetting. And he said, oh, no, I've never told this story before. <laughs> and he just couldn't believe it. Teresa Irish, she says, who wrote A Thousand Letters Home, you know, obey your parents. But, you know, I think if you just went to your grandparent, go to your grandfather and say, you know, I know that you went and that you served. And I just want to tell you that I appreciate that or however she's learned to put it over the years that, you know, I just wanted you to know that I knew that and give them the chance at least to speak about it. Right. It's so easy for us to look away. I feel like that about the Great War very much, World War One. It's so easy just to say, oh, gosh, so much suffering, so much misery. It's so complicated. Complicated. There, you know, who even thinks about the Austro-Hungarian Empire anymore? You know, it's like it's nothing you can wrap your brain around. It seems mm-hmm. pointless, and it's just something we want to move on from. That's not fair to the people that fought it, and it doesn't improve us at all. If we go through something like a terrible war, then we should at least be able to learn something, gain something from it as a people. Which I think you were saying about how it improves us in our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, I, so let's just say that two million people served in Vietnam proper. There are all kinds of facts and figures, and let's just say maybe half of them saw serious combat or some threat of combat. You know, that's still, um, you know, if you want to extrapolate millions of people and how many hundreds of thousands of families, everyone was in Vietnam in some way, and we're still there today because just what you said earlier, don't ask him about Vietnam. That's an unusual request within any community. I dedicate the book, you know, for those still coming home body and soul because the odyssey of echo company is a book about closure we don't get that a lot in vietnam about vietnam but stan parker and tom souls and perhaps some of the other inmates get a bit of it and one of the ways they do that is we go back to vietnam at the end of the book and i won't give away the ending but it ends with a smile quite literally and we have a a chance meeting or Stan and Tom do in Vietnam. And what I will say is that the Vietnamese people that we met and they met were really happy to see us as tourists and as people visiting their country and, and, you know, spending our money there. But there was none of the tension that we have about talking about Vietnam in the U.S. seemed to exist in any conversations we had in Vietnam. And likewise, Stan Parker and Tom Soles had the same feeling towards their Vietnamese counterparts. So that raises the question, if the two people who are fighting so viciously against each other have, in essence, moved on, then it's time for America to move on, too. This is kind of what partly informs the end of the book, because I really wanted to begin it really after World War II with Stan's birth and bring it right up to the present day. So you're really following his life, and you don't have to know much about the war or politics to be engrossed in the book, I hope, because like you said, I wanted you to walk in his shoes. Hopefully when you close it and look up, you think, oh, hmm, I think I've met this guy before. Maybe the next time I see him, I'll have some different questions for him. It's actually better that way. And I can see that why you would build it along those lines where we open up the Odyssey of Echo Company and hopefully people will, even if they, I'm thinking of that girl who they 
said, you know, her mother told her never ask about Vietnam. Well, then you're never going to want to pick up a book about it, right? You're never going to want to watch a movie. You're going to, it's going to be stigmatized. It's no different than telling a young person, don't touch the stove. It's hot. You're trying to help them, but that doesn't mean don't ever cook. It doesn't mean never go in the kitchen. We can tell people things that make us all recoil then from it. And that's not something that that we want to do here. We want to be able to learn from it and experience this amazing story. You write in the Odyssey of Echo Company to take us back to the beginning, quote, By the time Stan Parker and the recon platoon arrive, the Viet Cong know the, is it Chuchi Woods? Coochie. Okay. The Viet Cong know the Coochie Woods as intimately as Tom Sawyer knew the caves of Hannibal, Missouri. Who are these men that are fighting on the other side that we also have this dark, blurry vision of in the in the shadows and maybe don't ever ask about? How do they compare here to the Americans that we meet at the moment the Tet Offensive begins in late January of 68? Right. So there are Vietnamese people of a country that was once not split in two into North and South Vietnam. There are people who in their mind, are fighting to reunite their country after Chinese occupation, after French colonial occupation, and then during World War II, the Japanese also occupy the country when France surrenders and loses its colony. And so when World War II ends, a poet and leader named Ho Chi Minh begins to organize and proselytize. He's actually in Europe and fighting really a war of independence. They would like to govern themselves. We could probably talk a long time about whether or not we could ever have, quote, won in Vietnam, but certainly it would have had to have involved thoroughly crushing the will of the Vietnamese people to have their own independence and their own country back. And how we might have achieved that is just too bloody to really contemplate, I think. So nonetheless, this is where our American troops are going. There is a group of um, fighters called the Viet Cong, which is somewhat disparaging term. Actually, uh, I think it means something like Vietnam communists. They would call themselves Viet Minh. And so they're more of a guerrilla cadre, an unconventional force. And then there's the North Vietnamese Army, which is coming out of Hanoi and, and North Vietnam. Together, they are really trying to repel the uh, the American aggressors and the puppet regime, as they said, of South Vietnam. So in a nutshell, Stan Parker and Recon Platoon are meeting a very dedicated group of people. And it becomes quickly apparent to them just how dedicated and highly trained they are. Stan is wounded three times. And once he falls on a punji stick, once he's grenaded, and then once he's stabbed hand-to-hand combat, each time he comes away believing that this is a dedicated enemy. We talked quite a bit about the South Vietnamese Republic with Marcelino Trong, whose father was one of the diplomats there. And he talked about what was also the professed Ho Chi Minh goals, which was a republic and a country in Vietnam, a united Vietnam that would look to the West that had many of these shared values and even a shared language with France. Speaking of the West, they all spoke French when they were growing up. And I don't know what it means exactly that This book, The Odyssey of Echo Company, is making me think back to so many others on various wars and and various times in the memorial, maybe because it does have such a massive scope. And your view of it here is enabling me to think back almost as if when you go 
on an odyssey of your own in your life, you think back to other things and other times, and you're trying to find your way through and trying to relate to the things here as Stanley Parker is almost groping in the dark. He's becoming a soldier, trying to stay alive, trying to protect his friends. The Tet Offensive is very swift. You write, the swift execution of the countrywide offensive stunned the American military. Far from the leadership in the early pre-dawn hours of the Tet Offensive, Stan Parker thinks to himself, if this is what it's like, we're really in for a war. This is a moment that's a close-up view for him, and it's really an awakening. So what will readers learn about these 34 days of fighting that maybe they didn't know before these veterans opened up to you as they decide they want to tell their story before their time is up, frankly? Right, exactly. So time is running up. It's an excellent question, Dean, because what struck me now that you've just asked it is hearing over and over the sense of exhaustion and really terror, but terror almost being numbing down to just an ultra sense of hyper alertness. And so that close-up view, what I get is just how relentless and grinding the pressure and the combat was. A sense at any moment you could be ambushed or there'd be a mortar attack or just it was different than being on the line in World War II, which lasted longer for guys. But this, according to Stan, became so primitive in a way. You know, they don't have rucksacks at one point. They certainly don't have tents. They don't have food at one point because they lose their gear. And they're really just living in another age and in the end, trying to stay alive, you know, with each other. So much so that they begin to become distanced from the world itself. You know, one of the things you hear about Vietnam in the literature is, you know, um, back in the world, you know. So back in the world, I think my parents are probably going uh, grocery shopping today, or back in the world, this happened. And what that means is the speaker is almost placing themselves in outer space or in a, in a parallel reality. All of this, what I'm driving at here, creates a sense of disenfranchisement or being amputated from society, that you're almost, you're, these guys are living in another world, and they know it's going to last about 12 months, that's the length of the combat tour, and then they're going to come back to the world. So it's that sense of dislocation is something that readers may not be aware of. And this, if you begin to sense it and grasp it by reading the book, then you'll also sense the hesitancy that I think the person you talked about earlier about just not talking about it. Because really what we have here, and I hope that this book is something that sparks this gap. You have the parallel world of the Vietnam veterans experience, and then you have our world today. And there's this chasm between the two. And I think it's in that chasm where we've been living. You know, I can see a little bit over uh, you know, say I met Charlie. I'm just making this up, but listen, you know, you know, yeah, I know Charlie from the Rotary Club. Yeah, I think he was in Vietnam. Doesn't talk that much, but um, yeah, okay. And then, however, Charlie is still sitting in his modern day world as a person, someone with a job, perhaps a family, and he, however, is still back in that other world, looking at the present one, and it's an odd sense of dislocation. Readers and just may not be aware of it. I, I was recently out doing some shopping. Guy walked up, a Vietnam-era person, and he handed me a folded piece of paper. And I've seen him for months. 
at the coffee shop and he goes, hey, this is from me. I know that you wrote this book. I haven't read it, but here. And he handed me this paper. He walked away and I sat, I moved over to the side and I opened it and it was the most moving, one of the most dramatic vignettes of something that happened to him in Vietnam. What he was really trying to do was remember his buddy. His buddy had been killed in a firefight. You know, some 58,000 young men like this were killed in that war. Each one of them is some kind of psychic explosion, however, in all the skis of the men who've come home. And I read these these words, about three paragraphs, and he talks about what happened after he died and how they had to, and just the things, the very, very visceral kind of tactile things that had to happen next. And I closed the page, and I, I went out, and I was in a coffee shop, and I went out on the sidewalk and, and just saw him walking down the street, and I wanted to call after him and say, hey, but he was gone, and I thought, man, this guy's been carrying this around in his head all this time, and I had, I had no idea. And I'm, if I hadn't written the book, and someone else had written a book like it, and he'd bumped into him, maybe it would have prompted him to write that piece of paper, and that would have been just fine. Because I really feel that one of the things, one of the pleasures I have as a writer is just being, um, I don't know what you want to call it, that intermediary between silence and perhaps isolation and whatever it was that prompted him to step forward in a coffee shop and hand me this thing unsolicited and just walk away. He just wanted to be heard. That's all. When we talk about a national conversation about Vietnam, we talk about them getting older and we talk about the 50th anniversary of things like the Tet Offensive. Really, in the end, it's just about listening and making someone know that they've been heard. There's a moment in the book, just as a quick flash for listeners, where Stan Parker writes his younger brother and he says, go hug a girl and then write it down for me, everything that you experienced, because he can't remember it. And you would think, if you were a young man, you didn't have an experience like this. Like, how how could you forget something that's so personal? He says, tell me how her hair smelled, all those things. You mentioned the word tactile. People needed to be able to feel connected. That was Those are the kind of details that you'll get when you pick up the Odyssey of Echo Company that maybe you wouldn't think of otherwise if you hadn't been in that moment. That was so vivid to me. Well, yeah, it's. <laughs> I know. It was to me, too. It's like... Stan is asking his brother back in Indiana to be the antenna of his soul. He's like, he's asking him to be human again by proxy. And Stan Parker and the platoon mates haven't done anything to kind of become exiled from humanity, except that they flew thousands of miles away and are fighting in this war and are completely essentially cut off from modern communication as we know it. So the book is called The Odyssey of Echo Company because I really wanted to trace that journey. And, you know, as I was writing, I, I thought, what is this book about? I mean, why? this is compelling stuff. And I, 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 always, I always am interested if I feel like I'm going to learn something myself. And I often don't know. But I thought, in some ways, Stan Parker's first step into the Vietnamese soil when he stepped off the first helicopter and the first combat assault and the first firefight, was really his first step towards home. And that journey would take a lifetime, you know, well into his later years and finally take him all the way back to Vietnam. We're speaking with Doug Stanton about his latest book, The Odyssey of Echo Company. 
1968 Tet Offensive, and the epic battle to survive the Vietnam War. You can visit him at DougStanton.com or follow him on Twitter at DougStantonBook. Kirkus Review writes of the Odyssey of Echo Company, quote, an admiring history of men who fought in the Vietnam War. Stanton does not concern himself with the debates over the war or its legacy. His emphasis is on this group of men and their experiences then and since. And since is the part that I wanted to focus on there because there's many moments here where they're really forced back into that crucible of the platoon of being in Vietnam. One of those is when Stan Parker comes home on leave. Nobody, even the World War II veteran next door, wants to talk to him about this. When people do talk to him, it's not a kind word, certainly. He experiences these things even when he thinks he's found somebody who's going to stick up for him. The guy has to make clear to him that I, I don't support you at all, what you're doing there as a soldier. This has to only harden the reticence of these men to speak about this. And these are the men you needed to interview. So you needed to break this this 50 years here of being told, you know, we really don't want to hear about it. Very similar to these children being told, don't ever ask about Vietnam. They've just trained themselves. They've been they've been beaten down. They they know that outside those guys maybe that they served with, that there's no one they can speak to, even at the VFW halls. There's an episode of King of the Hill, of all things, where the World War II veterans and the Vietnam veterans come to some accommodation with each other. They come to understand. And one of the World War II veterans says, I understand. I haven't slept in years. I wanted to know, how did you get these men to open up to you? How do you make sure you don't shut them down? How do you explain to them that I'm not like one of these people, maybe that they've come to expect in a journalist, but I'm somebody that you can trust. I really want to get your story so that you can help them come home. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a patient person and I like listening. And I felt that I became a different person by writing this book by just listening. You know, it sounds silly or simple, but you know, so often today, if you think about our media stream and our news cycle, so much of what we do every day is about reacting. Your phone pings and you get an email, you have to react. Something happens on the news and you want to go put it on Facebook, you react. And all we're doing is reacting. And I'm not sure that we're really, you know, we need to start acting and not reacting. And my act as a writer was to simply say, okay, I've met Stan Parker on a helicopter in Afghanistan. He's been in countless um, battles in Afghanistan. He's telling me that Vietnam is really important, that something happened there that he doesn't understand. So I'm just going to listen. And one of the good things I think I, I do well is I'm not afraid to ask an obvious question. I really am not. So I try to come with an open mind and begin to absorb what the guys are telling me, you know, their frustrations, their points of pride, painful moments, things that happened that they didn't like, things they wish they hadn't done. Just listen and try to figure out what are they really saying? And in this case, I think what I discovered is that they really just wanted to be listened to and they wanted their story told in some way that made some sense. It didn't have to make it right. It didn't have to mean that the story had to somehow justify everything, but that it just had a sense of ordering the chaos. And that is, you know, by that, I mean, just the, the disparate events that happen when you're deployed for 12 months in a combat zone 
it all starts to run together. That's what I tried to do was to just be a witness. You know, I took Stan Parker when he tells me about it. There's a lot about his childhood. You kind of watch him grow up. You're right in the book. And I put that in because ultimately my own father pointed this out to me who read the book, who a person I admire a lot. And he put it down. He said, you know, this is really a book about parenting. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you really look at the relationship Stan Parker has with his parents and the relationship he has with his father in particular, it's a very loving one. It is not a competitive, macho, laden, angry relationship in the way you might think, oh, this is a book about Vietnam and this is about generational fighting. Not at all. In fact, Stan survives Vietnam because of his father. And uh, so I just want to leave readers with that as well, that um, in the end, it is about this battle, but it's also, I think, really about just about people getting on with the business of living. I won't spoil it either, but as you're saying that about parenting and raising children, that's a verb, and I think people forget what that really means in life. There's a moment in the book, one of Stan's experiences when he's in high school, I was really cheering his father there. I was thinking the way that he dealt with that. I mean, if you were in those shoes and there was something like that that happened at school, he handles it just the right way. And it's definitely not the stereotypical way you might think of it. You might think of, well, this is the 50s and this happens and you you expect it. He handles it the way that I think if he looked back on that later, he doesn't lose his temper. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. He goes in there and he deals with it. That's not one of the ones that's in combat, but there are many of those. And I know when I've spoken to veterans, it can get pretty intense. There was a fellow I'd seen a few times at the local bar that I go to and watch sports. And I'd seen him a few times and he'd mentioned that he served, I guess. I don't know exactly how we got on the topic and it was during the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And so we sat with him. He was there alone. So we kind of invited him into our group. I I didn't ignore him or anything. And then my wife stepped outside with a friend of ours was another woman. And he just started telling me what happened. And he said that I couldn't protect these young men that were under me at the time. I was only 22. What were they, what were they making me a, a lieutenant for? And boy, it was really hair raising stuff. In fact, my wife came in just still in the boisterous mood of the Super Bowl. And I said, just give me a minute. And she understood by the, by the look on my face. I just needed to let this guy speak. And I've, I've seen him since there and, and had, this hasn't come up, but it was very emotional for me. And I'm thinking something that I ask often authors is when you confront that task as an author, when you're hearing these things, people are downloading these dark details, this suffering, things like getting past that note. What do you do when you're living in the midst of that to give yourself a little separation so that you and your wife can go to dinner? So you're not always carrying that with you so much. How how do you deal with that? Hmm. Well, I think it's a good question because with, for instance, In Harm's Way about the sinking of the Indianapolis, that also was a very emotional, wrenching story. And at one point, I even went out to Lake Michigan near where I live and tried to dog paddle at night in the dark just to kind of assimilate or approximate the the experience of these young men floating during World War II in the Philippine Sea. So I do go to a bit of a distance, but then I realized also that there needs to be some distance. And what I learned in this book is that you can, and this this goes to, I think, why we've had this chasm between the Vietnam experience and our present day experience, which, by the way, is so overloaded with geopolitical news. We have a lot to think about today. But my message is you don't have to react. You don't have to fix this problem. 
so when you like when you were in that bar and you heard that guy, I think ultimately you said, you know what, this is okay. He, what he really wants to do is just tell me, and he wants to see that I'm actually acknowledging what he is saying. But beyond that, I don't have to fix. It's not his problem, so to speak. And that's what I thought about these guys. They can tell me this stuff, and and they're doing, and I and they trust me to do that. And um, I'm just going to trust them and myself that my job is just to sit and listen. So if I do that, then it doesn't become mine in a way to, quote, fix, whatever that might mean. Now, there are some real things we could do for these veterans, such as taking them to the VA and working on their health care issues and, and so on and so forth. I'm not talking about that, but I mean, because Vietnam is so heavy, or in other words, because we have focused so much on the heaviness of Vietnam and the things that went wrong there and uh, has a sense of loss, we, I think, as citizens think, well, we got to do something about that. And I think that has caused us to kind of shut it down, say, that's too much. I can't deal with that. Let's just not talk about that today. And then today becomes next week and so on. And so what I'm saying with this book is let's not shut it down. You don't have to, quote, fix this, but you just got to listen for a moment because the evidence is there that America is thinking about this war as these veterans get older and as all these anniversaries approach. And as a lot, and now as we enter almost, this, well, we're nearing the end of the second decade of our involvement in Afghanistan. And so we're thinking about war a lot. I think it's just time to pause for a moment and think about the Vietnam veteran, too. It was a great message. And as I've mentioned, many other authors to you and cited them. I will certainly be citing that in the future. That's something that I deal with myself that I struggle with. I say, I love to fix things. I love to help people. I love to look at something and say, wait a minute, why isn't this working right and, and tinker with it? But you do have to realize that sometimes you need that professional distance or just distance in life. You know, you can't take the whole world's problems on yourself. That doesn't help either of you. Now, whatever it was that I gave this gentleman sitting there, if for some reason he had that in him that he wanted to talk about, really great advice there. And I hope people will want to listen here to Doug Stanton's story in The Odyssey of Echo Company, a great book, a really moving book, and about parenting too. I have one final question here, and that is about these new veterans that are emerging from our post-9-11 conflicts. What do you hope that civilians like myself and those returning home will gain from reading the Odyssey of Echo Company and sharing Stan Parker's experiences so that we can smooth their transition here back into the world? I think people reading the Odyssey of Echo Company might be able to pick up a few things about today's veterans coming home, which is they don't necessarily need you to say thank you for your service. As with our Vietnam-era veterans, a lot of them have probably mixed feelings. They've been injured or they've been away from home. There's a, they've, they've given something and now they're coming back. Most of all, what they want to be is treated, uh, quote, normally or as usual. And that's really what was missing with the return of many of the Vietnam veterans. Now, some of those coming back in, in the 60s and in the early 70s, did have a warm homecoming. I've talked to some vets who have. It's not a uniform experience that it was negative all the way around. But I think by and large, the perception was is that they weren't treated as usual. They had become part of another, what I talked about earlier, that parallel world where they had been fighting and now they were trying to reintegrate. We've done a much better job 
reintegrating today with these new veterans. So I think it's just that sense of just treat the returning veteran today as you would anyone who's come back from a journey. But in this case, that journey involved explosions and frightening moments and death, perhaps, and but also at the same time, please be aware that it was likely one of the most important things that has likely happened to that person thus far. I found asking questions rather than saying, oh, great, okay, good, you were, oh, and moving on, you might ask questions, so where were you and how did it change you? Well, Doug Stanton, many authors, as that Library Journal Review said, have hashed out the reasons for the Vietnam War. But if people want an on-the-ground view of young men caught up in it and trying to survive, as the subhead here says, The Odyssey of Echo Company is a book they'll really come to hold in high esteem, as I do. I hope people will act and not react and pick it up and try to work on themselves, work on their lives, work on how we deal with our veterans coming home, and it'll really inform our decisions in our lives. My thanks to you, to Stanley Parker for sharing so much, and all the other veterans who shared their story with you so that you could share them with us and give us this broad perspective, yet that only comes from this narrow view here that's all the more important because it is so focused, so personal. I wish you the best of luck with your own odyssey as the book hits shelves, and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. The last week of January 1968 would rank as one of the most crisis-ridden of the Johnson presidency. The president kept clear, open lines of communication with congressional leaders, briefing them personally with increasing frequency. As the president and his advisors briefed the congressman, one fact became undeniably clear. The nation was being tested as never before. But it was not her strength that was being tried. It was her will, not her ability, but her sense of purpose. I believe with abiding conviction that this people, nurtured by their deep faith, tutored by their hard lessons, moved by their high aspirations, have the will to meet the trials that these times impose. Again, the book is... The Odyssey of Echo Company, the 1968 Tet Offensive, and the epic battle to survive the Vietnam War. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, And Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep great books like this and great authors like Doug Stanton joining you every Monday morning. My sincere thanks to Doug Stanton for joining us and for sharing the view of Stanley Parker and others on the ground during the Vietnam War's Tet Offensive but also their view when they returned home. Visit him at DougStanton.com or follow him on Twitter at DougStantonBook. And while you're at it, why not let us know what you think of the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. 
That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. We have over 30 now, and they're all five stars, which is really a great compliment. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.